0: Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi there, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which had a new episode in the last week with, with an economist who is researching some uh, technological changes in tennis. So be sure to check that out, as well as the extensive back catalog of 30 Love episodes with other people from around the tennis world and beyond. Uh, this week, I want to start by talking about a, a rare topic that converges on all sorts of, of fortunate things. It is topical, as in it's it's relevant to something that happened in the last couple of days of, of professional tennis. It is something that a lot of fans are interested in, and it is something that both Carl and I have written about. Um... I mean, simply the fact that we're going to talk about something that many fans are interested in is pretty remarkable, so we should really celebrate the convergence. What I'm talking about is Daniel Medvedev's upset over Novak Djokovic, in which he elected to take a really high-risk tactic, um, especially after losing the first set, and go really big on his second serves. So uh, I haven't watched the whole match. I, I'm not sure how consistently he did it, but that seems to be the story from the match that... He went big on the second serves. Um, Djokovic gave him credit for, for taking some chances. Seems like something that could have caused him to implode as spectacularly as he ended up winning. But this is something that that fans have speculated about for a long time. This idea that maybe for some players in some situations, it's better to to hit two first serves and accept more double faults in exchange for winning more points on your second serve. Rather than having kind of a puffball conservative Second serve, so Carl let, let's just just start with the tactic and, and I know you you were the first of the two of us anyway to to research this, and in general, you found that it, it wasn't a particularly good tactic, but it seems like there there are some caveats that come along with that there are there are reasons why players should do it.
1: yeah, and I, I wrote about it in two different ways and potentially found different things. The first one was very general. It was just, if we assume that players trying to hit their second serve like their first serve, win at the same rate and miss at the same rate as their first serve, would they be better off overall on their second serve by doing that throughout a match? And there are all sorts of reasons why that probably isn't how it would end up working out on their second serve exactly. But if you look at their overall stats over a season... For most players, they would be no better off and probably worse off. And I've seen other analyses try to do the same thing, but I think not take into account properly the um, the double fault rate on second serves and, and kind of double count it, thinking that the win percentage on second serves doesn't account for the miss second serves, which it does. So I think Karlovich was, was a notable except, exception there because his first serve success rate is so high and his second serve success rate is... Pretty mediocre for someone as tall as him. But I, I also look more specifically at the question of being unpredictable on your second serve. Uh, there's no particular reason that you couldn't up the risk level on your second serve or even keep the risk level the same, but just be less routine than most players are and potentially reap some benefits from being less predictable. Uh, We've talked on the show about how predictability may not be so bad and that Caroline Wozniacki is apparently incredibly predictable in her serve direction on first serves early in games and yet seems to get away with it. But I found in general that right-hander serving to right-handers would do a lot better serving uh, more often to the forehand in the deuce court. That because it's so unusual, because it's so typical to, to go for the kick serve up the tee... Uh, just changing it up somewhat seems to lead to a higher percentage of points won, so it's it's worthwhile being uh, more of a mixed strategy, less predictable. Um, I have not looked specifically at something like serve speed, which might get at risk just in that maybe that means you're taking some of the topspin off this, the typical kick second serve and converting that into speed, which carries maybe more risk of, of missing the box. So I think it'd be an interesting question. I think the other question that that neither of my analyses really dug into was for the particular match you're playing, something to do with the opponent and the conditions and how you're feeling and whether there are certain matches or matchups where it's particularly fruitful to go for big second serve. So, you know, maybe this match should be an interesting case study, although if you look at the overall match stats, Which again don't maybe reflect changes in the second and third sets. You don't see anything about what Medvedev did that suggested that he had a high risk second serve game. Or looked at it another way, if you never heard the comments about the match and just look at the stats, this one would not stand out. So that's interesting to me, too. Like maybe that's how he perceived it, how Djokovic perceived it. Maybe he was so safe in the first set that overall over the match it looks different. But I mean, his double fault rate and his win percentage rate on second serve were looked about as safe as you could you could be.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And that makes me wonder what I think the, the key question is about this tactic is, in this case, yeah, I mean, I guess I'd like to know better exactly how aggressive he was on these second serves and how many times. But if if he ended up, not double faulting too much not winning too many more second serves than we'd expect although we do have to take into account this is Djokovic returning so we do need to adjust for that a little bit but if we were to play this match five times or ten times and tell medvedev that he had to be equally aggressive every time are those the results he gets every time or are there matches where he double faults like three times as much um or, or maybe the mix is very different. Maybe he's very successful on the second serve points that go in, but then, like I say, then, then he double faults a lot. So I I wonder, is this is this just another variation of the the Dustin Brown versus Rafael Nadal tactic that we've probably talked about too much on this show over the years? But the idea that if you are the underdog going into a matchup against one of the greats, you're probably not going to win. So... Why bother playing your usual game? If you play your usual game, you're you're going to lose. And Medvedev would have that fresh in his mind because he had that happen to him a week ago in Montreal against Rafael Nadal. Like He didn't play badly, I don't think, but the score, if I remember right, was three in love. So he went in and played his typical Daniel Medvedev game and got crushed. So it would be logical if he was thinking... Like I mean, Nadal and Djokovic are different different animals face across the net, of course. But if he was thinking, okay, this this guy's one of the greats. I don't have a game right now that's going to reliably beat someone of this caliber. I have to take my chances, and he did, and and it worked out. But maybe maybe it wouldn't the next four times. I mean, do you think that's? I mean, is that a valid reason? Do you think to, to be more aggressive on the second serve, just the the, the Dustin Brown tactic of of. of Adopting a higher risk strategy, knowing that you're, you're probably not in the match otherwise.
1: I think for Dustin Brown it is, although <laughs> I also I also think that Dustin Brown maybe didn't change his tactics all that much against Nadal at, compared to what he would have against number two hundred in Qualies. Like that's just kind of Brown's game is to be unconventional and incredibly aggressive, not just on serve but on return. Um, but but I said for just Dustin Brown because he, despite being on his best surface at Wimbledon, is going to be a big underdog against Rafa. Your match forecast, I don't know exactly what they said heading into Medvedev-Djokovic, but I, would, I would guess it would be like 40-60. I doubt
0: that. Sorry for the clicking, everybody, since I, I <laughs> have to come up with an answer to this. But,
1: um... I mean, Djokovic is so highly rated by ELO. Maybe it's more like 30-70. Uh,
0: yeah, that's pretty close. 72-28. Yeah, so, so, so it's, it's not a Dustin Brown-Rafael Nadal kind of situation, the that, that point taken.
1: Yeah, I mean, somewhere in between. Okay, so he definitely was an underdog. He was a big underdog, and he did have that Rafa match fresh in his memory. And his last Djokovic match, by contrast, on clay in Monte Carlo f- four months earlier, he won in three sets. And again, on clay, maybe the slowest big tournament of the year, he won 62% of his second serve points with uh, half the double fault rate. So... Um, you know, I think that if, he, if it was really a sense of, like, I need to mix things up relative to how I played against Nadal, then maybe he would have come out from the first set against Djokovic with something different. And it sounds like more he adjusted because he just wasn't in the first set. Although his problem in the first set was not his serve, it was his return. Um, but maybe he felt like he was going to have so few opportunities on return against Djokovic that he had to step up his serve game and not give him any chances. But uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it's a combination of all those things. I mean, one of the things that I find really entertaining about Medvedev is that he is thinking through so many things during matches and some players understandably don't want to do that because that can affect their focus and just executing shots. But he clearly is thinking at many levels and thinking not just what should I do on this shot or on this point, but what is my strategy overall in the match? Is it working? Do I need to change it? So I, I I bet the Nadal match was in his mind to some extent, but I think it was also just, God, that first set didn't go well. I don't want another set like that one.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. And one thing that I'd wanted to dig into this past week but didn't get a chance was, was it another another instance of, well, maybe not another instance, but an instance of, of extreme second serve results from Felice auger who lost his first-round match in Cincinnati against Miamia Ketchmanovic. Um, that's a, a mm-hmm. mouthful, Auger-Aliassime, Ketchmanovic, uh, head-to-head. Which we'll be saying a lot, given their ages and, and <laughs> results. Yeah, if, if you're not yet comfortable pronouncing Ajay Ali Asim or Kejmanovic, or if I'm doing it wrong and you know better, um, tell me and continue practicing, because, yes, we, we will probably not get a respite from either of those names for many years to come. But in that match, it, it went pretty easily to Kejmanovic, uh, and Aljay Ali Asim missed tons of second serves. I think, I think his double fall rate was something like 20% which is just outrageously high. You, you can't do that and, and win. I'm sure you can find one example of it, but um, but it's almost never going to work. You rarely see double fault rates above 10% on the men's tour, and it's not even that common to see much above 5%. I mean, players just don't miss that many second serves. And I have noted that uh, after watching quite a bit about Jainal Yassim over the course of this year, the match he lost at Queens, that was the the match he lost to Feliciano Lopez, I think, was also a pretty high double fault rate and, and he hit several doubles in, in in at important points so this is an issue for him but uh, again, since we're talking tactics here we need to be careful when we call something an issue like yes he he misses a lot of second serves but he does often go for big ones maybe not going for something equivalent to his also very big first serve but he goes for a lot on the second serve he doesn't just spin them in and maybe that's a tactic here and we've talked we've talked a lot on the podcast about Nick Kyrgios and him being not only aggressive but unpredictably aggressive. I wrote something after the Australian Open about Tsitsipas and Medvedev and sort of lumping the that generation of players together and talking about their tactics against Djokovic which are higher risk than the way that previous generations have played Djokovic and it's paying off. I mean, obviously it's paying off in this case since Medvedev got the win. I mean, do you think it's a fair uh, a fair generalization to make that that the current generation of prospects, the Medvedev, I mean, I'm lumping Kyrios in here. Maybe that's not right, but uh, Medvedev, Sizapas, Ali, Assim. Um, do you think we can lump together them as particularly aggressive compared to the generations that came before them? specifically on second serve or in their game well in, to... in general i mean i think second serve would be would be interesting and most relevant but i uh, it it feels to me like it's it's more generic than that that i mean the second serve is is a symptom of that but it it, it runs deeper
1: yeah i mean medvedev is definitely not aggressive in his game especially relative to his height uh, we've talked about that maybe last week but and, and, and you know another member of this generation who maybe feels like an old man by now because we've been talking about him for so long because he was so successful so young is Zverev, who also isn't particularly success uh, aggressive once once the rally starts. But yeah. in terms of this question of double fault rate, I think you're you're right right on, and I mean I think that's the right proxy for second serve aggression, although. You know, the, the irony here is that if we spot a guy as being aggressive on his second serve, we're probably looking at the wrong match and making the right conclusion. Like, if he's double-faulting a lot, then the tactic probably isn't working, and that's one of those days he'll lose because of the tactic. But it's the days where his his double-fault rate is low because he's being aggressive on second serve and making it that it's successful and is the reason he's playing that way. So with Zverev with recently... Uh, he's been extreme. His last three matches, 14% or higher on double faults, and he's lost two of them. But presumably, that is a sign of something he's doing in other matches uh, with his second serve and, and being successful with at times. And you, you identified Auger Aliasim, who's had a bunch of high rates. Shapovalov is fifth. I'm looking at the ATP stats leaders on Tennis Abstract. Uh, Medvedev is eighth. So this isn't just a strategy against Djokovic in the in the Cincy semis, uh, and curios is, is 11th, so definitely high up. Rublev is another one at 12th, so a lot of the young guys seem to be doing this.
0: Yeah, and to your point that looking simply at double fault rate isn't it isn't going to tell us the whole picture, because you can have a high double fault rate if your second serve is bad. I mean, it doesn't have to be a tactic, um, although you might not land in the ATP top 50 if, if your second serve is just flat out bad, but... I think we could resolve that the way that I've approached uh, return aggression. And for those of you who have not fully internalized everything I've ever written, uh, which I'm assuming is 20 to 25% of you, then th- the concept is we take we take the good and the bad. So in the case of return aggression, we, we count up how many return winners you hit versus how many return errors you have. I mean, if, if you're aggressive, you should have more than average of both. Um, so in the case of... In the case of return aggression, we figure out how many standard deviations you are above or below the mean in terms of winner rate and also of error rate, then average those two. So if, you, if you're if you having a great day, you might hit a lot of winners but not miss very many shots. That doesn't mean that you're aggressive. That just means you had a good day. But if you're a standard deviation above average in winner rate and error rate, then, yeah, you're probably swinging big. And for second serves, it's it, double fault rate is obviously the, the metric to use for... Um, for assessing the bad outcomes but for good outcomes i think you could just use something like the ratio between first and second serve points one uh, i mean first serve points one should tell you pretty close like how good your optimal serving is and then if your if your second serve points one is closer than average to that then then you're going bigger um uh, at least in the aggregate. I mean, at, sing, at the single match level in which you might only have 50 serve points then and, and maybe only 20 of those are second serve points and there will be a lot of noise. But I think in the aggregate, we could take those two metrics and put them together in the same way that I'm talking about with return aggression uh, and get a pretty good idea of, of what players' tactics are and filter out the people who just have really good second serves or really bad second serves and, and focus on the tactic instead of just the results. I would I would go with uh,
1: ratio of unreturned percent on second versus first, as just to try to separate out any sort of rally effects which are so big on second serve success rates.
0: Yeah, that that would be ideal. I was was thinking that as well, but that's something you need match charting stats to get. And, um, and we can talk about my my new leaderboards that do have uh, unreturned serves and unreturned serves broken down by first and second serves. But I mean, for for a lot of players. I mean, even the ones we have a lot of coverage of, we might be talking about 10 or 15 matches over the course of the year, so maybe that's enough for some purposes to know what p- players' overall tactics are, but if you want to know whether Medvedev is getting more aggressive on the second serve in Cincinnati compared to other tournaments or, or something like that, then relying on, on the, the depth of the match starting project database is probably not going to work.
1: Well, I know maybe we're going to talk about that more later, but but since it's right in front of me and so so related to what we were talking about earlier, Auger Aliassim is 24 charted matches, which is awesome, and 24% second serve on return compared to 44.8% first unreturned, And the ratio is not yet one of the columns, but it looks like he is one of the more aggressive um, second servers for sure. Uh, Dustin Brown is... Much fewer matches, grain of salt, but his second unreturned is 25 and his first is 34. So he's <laughs> almost serving as aggressively on second as first, which squares with uh, what the eye suggests.
0: Yeah, and he hits his share double faults. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, at the, at the season level uh i think those numbers would would be pretty reliable i mean most of the the top guys we're talking about were were probably going to chart 10 or more matches in a year you might have been looking at the leaderboard that was just from the last 52 weeks if there's only a few dustin brown matches um i'm not sure there are yeah there. that
1: sorry that was that was not the uh, career one you're right
0: yeah um so so yeah i mean there are there are enough there's enough data there to, to come to some conclusions. It's just a matter of, I think, at, at least from the perspective of, of an occasional journalist looking at, at a match like Medvedev-Djokovic and looking for an angle to approach that match from, I mean, you want to say Medvedev did something different to win this match. And that probably means journalists, sometimes including myself, will stretch a little bit too hard to, to come up with a story that the numbers will support, that, to say that Medvedev was doing something unique in a single match um that's where the, the the match starting data probably doesn't quite quite do the work you need it to do, but at least we do have the the basic match stats for every match and can can look for high double fall rates or maybe some situation where a second serve win percentage is 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 close to first serve win percentage um so so yeah Medvedev is I think we weren't really sure what to what to conclude about him at this time last week because he had he looked so good and then just crashed and burned against it all. He came back and and backed that up extremely well, not only beating Djokovic but beating Gofan in the final yesterday, so winning his first Masters 1000 title. He's up into the top 5 now. Um so Carl, what's the what What's a reasonable latest estimate on on what we think of him going into the U.S. Open? I mean, is he, I mean, is he a top five favorite in New York?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's there's if you look at the list below him, in the Elo ratings and the hardcore Elo ratings. Okay, so in the hardcore Elo ratings, Rafa is below him, and I give Rafa a better chance. But there really aren't that many players who could credibly be thought of as having a better chance. A lot of them have, have built that ranking on results earlier this year or earlier, um, even earlier in their careers. So, for instance, like after Rafa, number five in the hardcore ELO rating is Gael Monfils. And, yeah, he well, doesn't he, have a better chance yeah, than Medvedev. <laughs> no. And then Dominique Thiem is number six in the hardcore ratings. Now, he won Indian Wells, and that was a great result. but
0: And he played really well in New York last year, let's not forget
1: he played yes. I mean he I think he knocked out Anderson, the defending finalist, and then he almost beat Rafa, but you know, he didn't make the final or anything. That's not like by his standards as a longtime top eight player, so it wasn't incredible. And that is I think by far his best hardcore grand slam result too. So anyway, team is team is an excellent player. Number six isn't isn't absolutely out of The realm of what i would consider reasonable for him on hard court but i definitely would put him behind medvedev so yeah i mean he's he seems pretty clearly like the next guy after the big three going into the u.s open and and the ratings bear that out and so does the um the grand slam the latest grand slam report
0: which it would would make sense if that tallied with the elo ratings since it is based on the elo ratings Uh, right
1: but it is interesting that the Grand Slam report shows him well behind Rafa in probability of winning even though he's ahead and I know that um you know the Elo we want for the US Open is a blend and Rafa's way ahead in overall Elo but like he's way ahead in win probability for the tournament
0: and Rafa also has a better seed his Medvedev yep. is out of the top 4 and that's that means he could be he could be facing any of the big 3 in the quarters so that's a big factor and it it's it's funny that we can talk about that still because I think the it was it, maybe it was last week it probably was just last week when I looked at that report. Medvedev was uh, had a, had a similar lower than expected uh, forecast for the in that US open report because he was outside the top eight. At, at that point his Elo the the hardcore blend for the US Open was higher. so so his his chances of winning the first or second round was quite a bit higher than number eight or number nine. But having the seed outside of the top eight knocked him down a little bit. So he is definitely inside the top eight now, but he's still he's still just outside of a threshold that would up his odds considerably. Um, do you think he's the next player to win a outside of the big three to win a hardcore Grand Slam?
1: Oh, interesting. I mean, you can make it a harder question by saying any Grand Slam, right? Um hardcore. Yeah. I guess I, I I don't put it anywhere near fifty percent that he's the next, but he's probably got the best chance.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I don't I I, I wanted to have a snappy response to that, but I, I I guess yeah you have to you have to follow the numbers and say that you know you'd pick him over Sitsipaz right now. You'd pick a lot of people over Zverev at least at the moment. Um, we're still kind of waiting to see how Aljazic Aliasim develops, and maybe Kachmadovich is going to put himself in that conversation pretty soon. But, but yeah, Medvedev's the guy with the results. And, I mean, if somebody is going to knock off the big three at one of the next couple slams anyway, then maybe he's the pick. Now, it sounds like... Jeff, I just, yeah. just want to sort of asterisk that, although I'm not
1: changing my statement. Um, few questions for you to see if you're aware of something I had an inkling of yesterday, but just looked up and I'm shocked by. How many wins career do you think he has at Grand Slams? Medvedev? Yeah.
0: Oh, it's, by the by the long prologue to that question and the context, <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking it's very small. Confirmation bias, yeah. Or it, it, anchoring it, or something. I don't know. If, it's not anchoring, so you haven't given me a number, but 15? <laughs> 11. Wow. Percentage. And most of, of them, it seems like a lot of them were at the Australian Open this year, because didn't he go kind of deep in Australia?
1: Well, that was my next question. What, what was his best result at a slam? Fourth round? That's right. Yeah. And percentage of slam matches won.
0: Well, if he's won 11, how many slams would he have played? I don't know, 60%? 50. 50. So he's played 11 slams. That's right, because he hasn't
1: won any. So 11 losses, 11 slams. Yeah, he's played, I think, every... He's played every slam since the start of 2017. That's when his slam okay. career started. So he was, he was outside the top 50 for almost half of those matches. So it's not totally shameful, but you know, one of the knocks on Zverev and his chances of being the next guy to win a slam is best of five. And I think Medvedev is still somewhat unproven at best of five.
0: So this is all a good point and, and makes me think that we shouldn't get too excited about Medvedev going into this grand slam on the flip side. It sounds like you're taking for granted that the big three are should be treated as the big three, uh, forecast wise. It seems like Djokovic, despite this loss, unless there's some some injury issue going on, like he's the favorite. Uh, Nadal looked extremely good in Montreal, at least against Medvedev. So, so he's in there. You normally w- wouldn't question Federer, but Federer's coming off of this loss against Andrei Rublev, which I think was four and three. So, pretty pretty abysmal for Federer on a fast court against someone like Andrei Rublev. Should should we be making much of a negative adjustment to what we think about Federer right now?
1: I trust Elo to make the appropriate adjustment. I, I do think it's striking that he repeatedly credited playing the clay season, going deep at the French with setting him up well for grass, and he also got in a full grass tournament, which meant he didn't lose early uh, in the lead-up to Wimbledon. So he we went into Wimbledon with a lot of wins and a lot of play, and obviously, you know, came within two points, of, came within one point twice of winning Wimbledon, which is which is great. And he's going into the U.S. Open with two matches in Cincinnati, one of them a win against, you know, a guy I don't think he'd expect to play past the first or probably not past the first round, and then a, a really one-sided loss, like not as close as the score that was one-sided suggests. So this will be a very different uh, kind of preparation. And some recent U.S. Open suggests that maybe he would have benefited from from more preparation. But even with Medvedev as hot as he's been, Federer's overall body of work is more impressive. And I, I don't just mean over his career, I mean over 2019. And I would still uh, put him ahead of Medvedev, but definitely behind Djokovic and Nadal in terms okay. of chances of winning the Open.
0: You think it you think Nadal is clearly ahead of Federer. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean I don't think the report agrees with that and I I underestimated Federer versus Nadal at Wimbledon, but or maybe I estimated correctly and it was an unlikely result, which happens sometimes in forecasting, but I Yeah, I mean I I just think that Rafa has such a better lead-up and really has been been good at pretty much every tournament he's played this year, whatever the surface, so just from a sort of consistency standpoint, I think Federer's more vulnerable to an early upset.
0: Yeah, and certainly that's what we saw last year. I don't think anybody saw John Millman as the guy who was going to knock him out. Um, One more men's name I want to talk about before we we switch over to some women's results from this last week is Roberto Bautista Agu, who is... He's sort of the inheritor of the David Ferrer throne, which isn't entirely fair or entirely accurate, but seems like commentators need somebody to talk about who's unheralded and hardworking, and he certainly is those two things. And with his quarterfinal result in Cincinnati, he broke into the top ten for the first time, and I was a bit surprised thinking about that. Like, he's he's been hanging around the edge of that group he certainly spent a lot of time in the top 15 over the years he's now a grand slam semi-finalist he's been in a number of grand slam quarters i think uh maybe that's wrong maybe just a very large number of grand slam fourth rounds but he's consistently a guy who you'll see in the beginning of the second week uh he knocked out djokovic earlier this year so he has an excellent resume Uh Whenever somebody new does land in the top 10, especially someone who's a veteran, I always think back to all these other players who have had brief stays on the edge of the top 10, like the Jurgen Meltzers, um, Nico Almagro, um, Janko Tepserovich, who was actually there for a couple of years but always seemed pretty fringy. I mean, Carl, where do you put Bautista Agu in that group? I mean, is he going to go down in history? as one of these guys who we kind of scratch our heads thinking that he was ever a top tenner, or or is he better than that? I think
1: he's better than that. I mean, all the guys you mentioned had their highlights, so I don't know exactly how to weigh Batista Goods, but he's got the the recent wins over Djokovic, a couple of them this this season. And, you know, by by Ilo this is no fluke. He's number seven. Sometimes when guys sneak in it's off of some, you know, wins at a week 500 and and you know, easy Masters draws, getting them to the semis and things like that. Uh, but this suggests, if anything, that his ranking undersells him. And then, you know, less quantitatively, I think we've all seen matches between him and and top players where he's, you know, every every bit as much as them in the match and sometimes he wins like with Djokovic but he's he's always you know up for a, a good fight can play on every surface i mean his his semifinal coming at wimbledon is is one of the reasons the ferrer analogy doesn't really work um by the way in terms of your stat this is another indication of maybe like this guy was top 10 quality but just didn't win a few key matches here and there if i'm counting correctly before this season, he had made eight fourth rounds at Grand Slams, but never won one. And then this year, he he won in Australia and lost in the quarters. And then he won in at Wimbledon and made the semis. So from a rankings point, point of view, that's clearly one big reason he's gotten over the hump. But it just shows how consistently um, good he's been for a long time, if not great.
0: Yeah, I think that that's how i perceive him as well is that even now it, it seems a little bit surprising that he didn't sneak into the top 10 ever before and i think you've hit on the reason why which is that he's been he's been so consistently good but not great and unless you mix in a little bit of great like a grand slam semifinal, then you can do that and and be number 12 for a long time just lots of like the occasional 250 victory, lots of semifinals, and all those Grand Slam fourth rounds, like we're talking about, um, that that's a recipe for number twelve. And one thing that makes makes me think of him as as a more solid player than some of the the fringy top teners of the past. That the name I didn't mention earlier that slipped my mind that I I like to bring up here is Juan Monaco. Maybe the fringiest top tenor of all. Um, you don't see Bashi Sagu losing in a lot of first rounds. And, and ironically, since I mentioned that, he's he has a has the potential to really build on this ranking going into the U.S. Open because that's one of the places where he did lose in the first round last year against um, Jason Kubler, which incidentally is a, a match I was there for. Uh, didn't look that good that day. But it seems like, like it would be a safe bet that he's going to defend a lot more than his first-round loser points in New York. So maybe we'll see him at least climb up another step or two uh, before his peak ranking is settled for all time.
1: Yeah, and one of the themes when we've talked about the ATP this season is that once you get past the big three, there aren't a lot of names that pop up as like, obviously they should be in the top ten, obviously they should be considered the next threats at the next slam, Um, the big three hogging so many of the... Ranking points, Elo rating points, and Slam, you know, probability percentage points. So, Batista Good, given that what that group looks like, seems more than worthy of being in the, in that um, in that next set. And he's he's number six in the Slam report for winning the U.S. Open. And if you had asked me before looking at it, would he be bef- ahead of or behind team? I would have had a hard time figuring it out. So. Um, yeah, I, I, very worthy and, and also a sign of how maybe as much as the, the kind of 27 to 33 age group has been disappointing simply because the, the big four have hogged so many of the big titles. They're, they're right now hanging with and maybe ahead of a lot of the, the younger prospects.
0: Yeah, and Batista Agu is an interesting example of that group as well because he's someone who I don't think you'd ever say he has failed to live up to expectations. And you can say that about some of the other guys in that group, like chilich and Nishikori. But, um, but I mean, that's another another reason why the commentators love him, right? Is he, he he follows in Ferrer's footsteps of the person you can you can describe by saying he's. He's earned every bit of what he's got, or or he he's wrung every every last bit of talent out of out of what he's got, um, which is is true. I mean, it's, it's 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 been great to see him continue to 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 thrive without this sort of flashy stuff that we we see from a Zverev or a a Sitsipas or maybe even a Medvedev. So since we are talking about Groups of players who are difficult to differentiate. In this case, the the ATP from number four down. Uh, that's a good segue to the WTA, which is hard to differentiate from number one down. Um, Ashley Barty came into Cincinnati as the number one seed. She lost in the quarters, I think. Uh, Osaka made it to the quarters and had to retire to Sophia Kennan. Uh, Simona Halep lost to Madison Keys in the, the round of 16. So... A lot of the big names did not perform as expected in Cincinnati, but that's itself kind of to be expected on the women's tour these days. So the women who ended up emerging in the final were Madison Keys and Svetlana Kuznetsova, probably not of last two who anybody was picking. But I want to talk about Madison Keys. I mean, she's been she was on everyone's prospect radar for a long time from a, a very young age. She has made a U.S. Open final. Uh, this is her biggest title, but she's been in in Premier 5, Premier Mandatory Finals before. So she's always been kind of hanging around as someone you could point to and say, like, I can see her making a big breakthrough. And I mean, here we at least kind of have it. She's got the hardware to prove it. Uh, one of the stories that, came out of this week for Keys was uh, she was quoted as saying something after the the Halep match that she felt like she was finally playing within herself so she has this very aggressive game lots of winners and usually coming with lots of errors but she felt like she wasn't going for too much it seemed like in at least in the, the couple of matches that I saw against Halep and then the final against Kuznetsova she was still going for a lot I mean she was still she was still hitting lots of winners and this brings us back to the same sort of aggression question we were discussing with the men which is how to how to really isolate a tactic like if madison keys is dialing it back a little bit i mean how can we tell that apart from someone who's just playing better i mean so in this case carl like obviously madison keys had a great week she had tons of winners without so many errors that they they knocked her out of contention do you think this is at least a, a a mild tactical shift to be a little bit more conservative, and and maybe, maybe she is so powerful that she can she can make that kind of shift and still win by overpowering her opponents?
1: It's definitely possible. Yeah, she definitely has that skill, um, and you know I think that's been one of the. Um, one of the things coaches have worked with her on throughout her career is like, what is the right level of aggression? Probably with most players, that's one of the top questions for, for them to figure out with coaches, but especially, especially with keys. I mean, there's, there's a kind of aggression where you're, your first opportunity to hit an aggressive shot, you go for a winner. And there's a kind of an aggression where your first opportunity, you go for the shot that might set up a winner. If the pl- other player gets it back. And the second one can lead to as many or more winners because by the time you're actually going for it, it's a safer shot, but it, it, it should involve missing less often if you're giving yourself margin on, on that first setup shot. And that that can be a difficult thing to put together. It can be difficult to like have that patience and, and risk sort of the other player being so good at defense that they neutralize the rally and not everyone has the patience for it or the, maybe the, the physical conditioning to want to go through a whole match playing that way. Um, So it it takes a lot of discipline and, you know, a different kind of swing. But I think, you know, if Keys can consistently play that way, she she could be a top contender at the U.S. Open. Um, And, you know, it seems like that would show up in terms of some of these scores that you've calculated for some of the more extreme aggressive players on tour like Sabalenka and Kvitova. Just in terms of like percentage of shots that are super aggressive,
0: yeah, I was thinking as as you were describing the two variations of aggression, the latter of which I think the official name is controlled aggression that's um, that is the acceptable preferred kind of aggression um, I think she's played Halop six times before this week, so so seven matches between them, and all or close to all of them are in the charting database so we, we could look at just something as simple as average rally length for those seven matches. And, and if she is doing something like the, the more conservative aggression that you're describing, it would show up in aggression score, like you're talking about, because it would be more shots for the same number of winners. But it, even more basic, it would show up in rally length. Um, it would be fewer you know, two or three shot rallies where it's just C ball, smack ball and and more four or five shot rallies where you take that opportunity to hit it hard and, and set up your next shot so you might not have to dig that deep to get there um, the, the follow-up question I wanted to it's to talk about with keys is I, I saw someone on Twitter mentioning her draw and it sounded like they were implying it was a it was a particularly impressive path that she she blasted through the, the Cincinnati bracket so she she won a first round match against Garbini Mukaruzza. Um, did she? I don't think she faced match point, but it was really close. It was a three setter, a long match. So she won that in the first round. She beat Kazakhina in the second. Then the the Halep upset, which was another pretty long drawn out match. Venus Williams in the quarter, Sofia Kennan in the semis, and then Kuznetsova in the final. Um, it's tough to tell these days with the ups and downs of. Pretty much every player on tour, but does that sound like a tough draw to you at a WTA Premier? I think this is a Premier Five, so I mean a a, a high level event that pretty much everyone is competing in. I,
1: I I feel like I am nothing compared to the numbers, and you know would love to know like relative to the average random draw she could have faced. But no, it doesn't seem particularly tough. I mean, putting Muguruza and Venus in there is is a good way to say – and Kuznetsova, for that matter um, – is a good way to say, man, she beat four Grand Slam winners on, <laughs> in that draw. <drop, laughs> yeah. But, you know, when are when's – so Muguruza won fairly recently, but, like, has been on such a decline since that it feels like a long time ago. And then for Venus and Kuznetsova, it really is a long time ago, and their rankings reflected. Kennan is up and coming, has been hot, you could say is, is better than her ranking. And, you know, Halep just won Wimbledon as a top-five player – so, certainly those two. And and then, you know, there's the fact that Premier draws for a while have tended to be pretty wide open, as have slam draws. So, maybe this is slightly less so. But, I mean, based on rankings, a few of these players either barely made it in or, or in Kuznetsova's case, needed a, a wild card. So, that would suggest that it's not that tough or a, a path. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, I guess some of those matches being pretty tight and even the semi and final being straight sets, but all four sets close can also kind of like make a draw seem tougher. It's There's a lot of ex post facto sometimes about draw uh, challenged to the
0: winner based on like how one sided the matches were, which is yeah, not and a great also there's, there's an ex post facto thing there. Wait, if someone made it to the semis because they had a great week, that makes them a tough draw for someone else like. Kennon sounds like a tougher draw because she had won a bunch of matches to get to the semis than she would have been if she was the first name on that list as the first round victim.
1: Yes. I mean, I think Kennan because she made the semis in Toronto, is is a slightly different case. But I agree that even Kennan, if, if she happened to be Keyes' first round draw, would have not seemed like such a, a conquest.
0: Well, certainly that's the case for Kuznetsova. I mean, we're talking about her constantly this week and for good reasons. And yeah. she racked up a lot of wins. But I mean... He, she could have easily been Keys's first round opponent, and if she had been, then I mean, any anybody who's current with the WTA wouldn't think twice about it. Um, which, with no respect to Kuznetsova, just no disrespect to Kuznetsova rather, uh, just the nature of where her where her results have been lately. Um, the other thing about Keys I wanted to touch on is, I mean, she's she's got this aggressive game, really strong ground strokes, usually a good serve. She can she can hit the serve really wide and get get cheap points that way. But we don't think of her as a good returner. I didn't see anything this week that convinced me otherwise. Someone on Twitter described her as having a fourth-rate return uh, against Kennan's third-rate serve during the, the semifinal match. And I did notice of these names, there's a couple players there who, at least in the past, have been very effective servers, Muguruza and and Venus Williams. Nobody else is is a very good server. Uh, Kuznetseva was often just spinning them in during the final. Kennan doesn't have a big serve, at least not yet. Halep often uh, is very conservative. And Kazakina is, I mean, one of the weakest servers on tour. So, I mean, do you think that that, that remains sort of an Achilles heel? Like, if, if Keys runs into a draw that's filled with more, I mean, this is a loaded question, but more like Osaka, Serena-type servers, that like, she wouldn't be able to replicate this?
1: You know you just have to win more games or more points in the tiebreaker than your opponent so it, it it's all, everything in tennis has some symmetry governing it keys doesn't have to be better on return than serve she doesn't have to be above average on return she just has to uh, win enough return points i i think that It definitely helps her have more opportunities, more looks in a given set, be less subject to chance and, um, you know, down to 7-5 in a tiebreaker or something. She's – you could see in in her stats – and again, I'm looking at the absolutely awesome, possibly to be discussed later, match charting project leaderboards. Um, One of the stats you can see that sort of reflects – balancing aggression versus consistency in a game is the return-and-play percentage versus return-and-play points-one percentage. And Keys only makes uh, 69% of returns in play, which is not great. But when she does, she's well above average in return-and-play win percentage at 55%, um, which suggests that she's returning aggressively, so when the return lands in, she's ahead in the point. And, you know, that puts her in company of, like, Sharapova and Monica Sellis, thinking of, like, other aggressive, great players. So not so bad. Um, Again, like, maybe she could be balancing her aggression a little better. But fourth-rate return is something someone says because they think second rate doesn't sound insulting enough. Like there's nothing particularly bad about her return. It it probably could get better. It'll probably never be as strong as her service game.
0: Yeah. And there's, she's certainly not alone on the WTA. There's a lot of very good players who don't make their money on the return. And Osaka is one and she's won two of the last four grand slams. Um, even even Venus Williams at least in in her veteran phase like doesn't have a particularly strong return so so there a lot of slams have been won by players who are not great returners and who might equally uncharitably be described as fourth rate returners so yeah it doesn't close the close the door on any possible career outcomes for keys it just is something to remain aware of in in some of these matchups um so since we we've been sort of dancing around the the new leaderboards. Let's let's talk about them. We don't have a ton of time left in our hour for this week. So, um, for those of you who uh, again are not uh, are not closely attending to my every word on the the tennis abstract blog, um, I just created a bunch of of leaderboards based entirely off of match charting project stats and what the I broke them into four types of stats. So there's a there's a serve leaderboard, a return leaderboard, a, a rally stats leaderboard, and then Sort of a catch-all, which is tactics, so which overlaps with rally a lot, and each one of them has I don't know 12 to 15 new stats on them. All these are things that you really can't can, you you can't get without the the shot-by-shot match charting data. And for each one of those categories, I've got uh, uh, for men and for women a, a last 52 weeks leaderboard, and also a career leaderboard, which is super interesting because we've got a lot of of charts of the all-time greats so we don't have a, a lot of charts as an absolute number from the the 1980s and 90s but we do have a lot of slam finals and semifinals. so so you can make comparisons like carl just did between madison keys getting returns in play and monica sellis getting returns in play which is which is pretty cool um uh, and yeah on on the blog over the weekend, I posted glossaries for all these. So some of the stats are things that I've introduced over the years, like uh, forehand and backhand potency and, and serve impact, which tries to to aggregate a few different things about the influence of the serve. So some of them are pretty complicated. Some of them are pretty straightforward, like the unreturned serve percentage. But, I mean, the main point is that these are all stats that basically didn't exist in any, any like, reference type form before now. So you can make these comparisons that, that weren't really available before. I'm hoping in the next few weeks to get the match-by-match stats in these same categories available on the tennis abstract player page, pages as well. So if you want to look at something like we were talking about, the Keys halop history of whether maybe the, the rally length was longer this time than the previous six times they've played, it would be easier to look something like that up. Or if you wanted to look at you know Medvedev's results um, yesterday versus versus his other recent matches. You can do that on a match by match basis. We're not quite there yet, but but I will get there. Uh, so, Carl, you, it sounds like you're you've been in the vanguard of, of digging into these, and you've already cited the the unreturned stats a little bit um, and and a couple others over the course of this hour. Are there any in particular that that you wanted to highlight as worth digging into more? You mean like? individual nuggets or like columns that i want to study oh well columns you think are interesting not study feels like such a extreme term for talking about tennis stats but yeah let's talk about the, the the columns the 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 statistics not the the specific player results on statistics but i mean what are the what are the the what are the columns that interest you
1: well, I think serve impact and like second unreturned percentage is so interesting because, you know, we hear sometimes about players supposedly having some of the best serves ever, but, you know, to what extent is that a misleading artifact of their, uh, serve win percentage that really reflects their ability at doing the rest of things that make you good at tennis. Um, so I, I think that that is interesting and also like, um, looking at the different ways people have their their impact on serve, like um, having the serve be on return versus having a winner on the, on the next shot. Uh, and then, you know, the tactics are just um, kind of endless, like what you can do with them. Uh, obviously, they're not endless. There are only so many columns. But, uh, you know, I, I find each of the columns fascinating. I, I especially am interested in like um, – how often the backhand down the line is a winner. That's really different for different players. They use that shot differently. Uh, tr- the drop shot is such a, a varying um, tactic that, that some players use hardly at all and some quite often. Uh, and then, you know, of course, net frequency um, and, and how that can be different from serve and volley. These are all things that I found really interesting in looking at individual players over the years, in the match charting project, their overall stats and stats for specific matches. And now to see it over their career in the context of everyone else is, is elucidating. Um, I mean, it it makes me wonder about the players with fewer than 20 matches, which I understand why you don't include. It makes me wonder about like all the non match charting career stats and how they compare to these and you know, what, what they, how one feeds into the other, um, there's a lot yeah, I, here. Ho- I
0: hope lots of people are wondering about the players who do not yet have 20 charted matches. Because there's <laughs> only one way for those players to get on the list: Bribe Jeff to lower the threshold. That's uh,
1: not the way.: Chart I, matches, chart matches. I, I don't chart matches, but I like to tell people to do it. It's really fun. It's the best.
0: That's why you charted that, that one match in 2015, and, and you haven't since. It was the one, so fun. It was fun, but
1: I think I'm just narcissistic. I was playing in that match, so I guess I just need to like see myself in the players more. And um, you won, didn't you? I did. Yeah, that's. I wouldn't chart it otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the j- just to give a. I know we're not talking about individual players, but if you want to give a taste of like how this will surprise you and delight you, go to the women's career return page and sort by return winner percentage. And the top two names may have never been in the same. Uh, same sentence before.
0: You got to tell us.
1: Oh, okay. I thought this was to, to get people to do it. All right. Well, do you want to guess? Top two all time
0: return winner percentage, um, women. I have no idea. I mean, I I, I would guess Ostapenko, but probably not.
1: Ostapenko is really high on second serve, but not as high on um, on first serve. So. Navratilova is number one at thirteen percent, and Sara Arani, number two at twelve percent.
0: Wow. I I am indeed shocked to hear those two in the same sentence, especially in that sentence. I would not I would have guessed a lot of names before picking either of them, and that this is an important thing to keep in mind when you see names like Navratilova and and Evert and the other the other greats from. Let's say before 2000 or so, when they show up on these leaderboards, they really, really earned it. Um, especially the women; there's so there's so little video available of their careers. Like we have gone to a lot of effort to track down slam finals and slam semifinals, but that means that like if, if you if if we've got 15 Navratilova matches, virtually all of them are slam finals, slam semifinals, like equivalent of premier finals. Whereas if we have 50 matches of arena sabalenka it's because i'm obsessed with arena sabalenka so i've charted basically all of her matches in the last year and a half Um, that's a very different set of opponents so the the older players have really earned their their match charting stats
1: and with navratilova with both of them what really strikes me is that they still had a pretty high return in play percentage so it suggests, speaking of controlled aggression that they were going for winners on shots maybe they should have been without missing so much that they were not getting a very high percentage of returns in play. So that contrasts with Keyes' more aggressive style on return.
0: And another aspect of of Navratilova showing up at the top of that list is that he, uh, or she rather, uh, was chipping and charging a lot. So a lot of those weren't necessarily super aggressive shots, but the tactic was aggressive. So... She'd, she'd hit a, a good approach shot return and then force her opponent to go for something big. So it's not technically a winner. One of the things that will will show up if you dig into the glossaries is I almost never count winners just the way that that, um, that is the standard definition of winner, which is the the, the ground stroke or volley or whatever that it, it, the other player doesn't touch. I always count... Uh, induced forced errors as well, so it's it, it, you can call it winning shots or point-ending shots or something. There's not a really good term for that, but I think that's the concept we're looking at. Like we don't really care whether your shot is so good that no one can touch it. We care if it's so good that it's probably not coming back. And I think probably a lot higher percentage of Navratilova's fall in the induced forced error category than than the more modern players do. But I mean they, they count just the same. The the points are worth just as much. Whether they get a racket on it or not.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And she was slicing on 23% of returns. She didn't come in, I'm sure, on all of them, but probably a lot of them. Chris Evert, sorry, I'm, I'm done in a second. But Chris Everett sliced on guess what percentage of returns?
0: Hmm, I don't know. Navratilova was only. Two, I would have thought Navratilova was higher, but I don't know. Seven. Fifty-nine. Fifty-nine. Surprise. Wow. and Monica Sellis, twenty nine. Huh. Everett, I will say, Everett is one of the toughest players to chart because she was she was hitting topspin ground strokes from the moment it was really practical with the racket technology. So she hit a lot of ground strokes that are very difficult to classic to classify. They, like they'd be they'd sort of be topspin. Like they obviously weren't traditional slices in the way that players were hitting slices in the seventies and early eighties. But they really didn't look like contemporary tower or, or current topspin shots either. So I th- there's there's some wiggle room in that that definition. But uh, but yeah, I'm surprised she was slicing so many returns. She didn't. It, I've charted several of her matches lately, and it doesn't feel to me like she's slicing that often. But maybe it's just because her points go so long that she slices the return and then hits five or six more topspin shots after that. So one last thing I want to talk about before we we um finish off today's recording is carl is lucky enough to live in new york where a lot of tennis is going on uh right now qualies are starting at the u.s open this week so we say this every year you're probably hearing it from a lot of sources now it's sort of the hipster thing to do is uh to to take in the free tennis at the uh the national tennis center in flushing the week before the u.s open if you've never done it you gotta go it's super fun um but it's even more than it has been for several years this week, because in addition to U.S. Open qualifying rounds, the, the WTA added the Bronx Open in, of course, the Bronx. The New, New Haven had a tournament for many years, but they couldn't keep it going. So that became a tournament in China after the U.S. Open. But the WTA introduced the, the Bronx Open this week as well. And Carl, I, I gather you, you were there last night, so you've gotten a taste of the, the WTA Bronx event. Yeah, it's at the Cary Leeds
1: Tennis Center for Tennis and Learning in Cretona Park, and it's a really nice facility. I'd heard a lot about it. I think it only opened a couple of years ago, and $26 million or something uh, to build it. Beautiful, great facility for the area, probably not optimized for a pro-level event. It poured yesterday, and not, not a lot of places for people without credentials to hide out from the rain. But really nice courts, uh, really pretty setting in the park, and a great field. A lot of players who clearly want more matches going into the, the tournament. Not a ton of Hawkeye, so a lot of annoyed players on, on certain calls. But generally speaking, very welcome event. Sam Stoser pointed out before the event, and again after her doubles win yesterday, that just being able to stay in the same hotel for all three weeks, uh, she's clearly planning to stick around in New York for the duration of the U S open that um, having that sort of continuity is really nice being in the same city. And it's, it just makes a lot of sense that New York would have a tournament leading up just like London does before Wimbledon with, with Queens club. So yeah, it'll be fascinating to see if they do well enough to, to survive, you know, to, to exist past this year. This was kind of a, a bridge year and they're they're really pushing to get the public out there. Totally free tickets, which I've not encountered before at a tour level event. So you know, if you're into the free qualies, there's an, another free event with much higher ranked players. You can get about as close to them as you can at qualies. So a nice uh, nice alternative this this week.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I am I am jealous. I would definitely be there if I was uh, if I was in town for it. The WTA used to have a Bronx event. Maybe it was. 10 15 years ago that that uh that bit the dust but it had been on the calendar before but as you point out it's a it's a pretty good field i would guess it stacks up pretty well in comparison to other wta internationals and in the past um new haven was a premier not a premier five or premier mandatory but but at a reasonably high level so they would always get a, a top 10 player or two um the, the Bronx Open doesn't have that, but it does have a top 20 player in Wang Chung and uh, lots of other players, that, the, the tier below that. So it seems like players would want opportunities to compete this week, like you say. Uh, and the US Open just doesn't have that to the, the extent that the other Slams do. I th- I'm racking my brain, but I think the other Slams have two warm ups for men and two warm ups for women the week before. Uh, but the U.S. Open has only one of each with the Winston-Salem for the men and now the Bronx for the women and it's been that way for a few years so I'm, I'm not sure I understand why it would be different seems like there should be plenty of venues lots of opportunities to play in the U.S. but the the trend is headed in the wrong direction in that case um but that seems like a good note to end on. Encourage everyone to go watch some tennis. Uh, I know the U.S. Open is is streaming more qualifying than ever, so I'm not, I'm not sure how to watch it exactly depending where you are. But you can watch a lot of qualifying matches uh, in, via some method or other, even if you're not there. And, of course, a week from now we'll have the, the big event itself. So we'll probably be back about this time next week to preview the U.S. Open. Carl, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jeff.